Hi, everyone, and welcome to Murder Friends, the podcast where three friends from three different countries talk about murder. My name's Alana, and I'm Canadian. Hi, I'm Anna, and I'm American. My name's Hannah, and I'm British. So sit back and relax. You're among friends, and let's talk murder. Now, today's episode is really special because it is the conclusion of Spooky Month, which, in my opinion, is probably the best month. You're right. I love Halloween. It is the best time of year. Well, the whole month, really. Yeah. It's spooky season. It's pretty great. I mean, in general, you get to start wearing sweaters, boots, you know, go completely black and goth, and coffee, mm, pumpkin yeah. spice lattes, if that's your sort of basic thing. <laughs> you know. Which it is, because Which it is. <laughs> and if you're a mur- murderino, then it's squad gourd season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. The only thing that I've noticed, so I've been living in England for um, just a couple of years, and England doesn't do Halloween like North America does, which is kind of a bummer, but I guess I just sort of get used to it. Whereas, like, in Canada, it, it feels like everything is draped in fake cobwebs from, like, October 5th and on. Like, the stores go all out, all the houses go all out, costumes go all out. Where here in England, not not so much of a, of a popular thing. No, it's, I noticed that too, because um, in America as well, it's insane. Like, people go nuts for Halloween. It's a big thing. I mean, all about your costume. You, people decorate their whole house. I mean, some go even more nuts than Christmas with the whole house decorating. I mean, it's a massive, massive thing. And then every house participates. Like, here, you might get... Obviously, I have a little one, so I have been trick-or-treating here with her. And you might get, like two houses on the street it's just it's pretty pathetic but it's only because you guys don't do it yeah it was never really like a a thing when i was a kid i mean it it, we had we had halloween but we never went trick-or-treating we didn't do like costumes that much there were like the occasional halloween party but like that was it yeah but i think that's mainly because we don't a, a bigger event in the uk is probably guy fawkes night yeah, and which it's is so on the 5th close. of November. Yeah, it's like Bonfire Night, um, which is, I think, more of a, like, traditionally British thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, so you do you, fireworks you and things. everything. You set, thing, you set things on fire. So. <laughs> <laughs> so we do that more on 4th of July. Yeah, I just remember, like, growing up in Canada, Halloween, you get your costume ready, like, two months in advance. So shout oh, out to, no, you're, like... No, you're literally talking about it, aren't you? Like, for with your friends. Oh, yeah. Who can come up with the best costume? Yes. And then you all go to Value Village. Shout out to Value Village. Anybody who lo- loves Value Village. They are like a charity shop, but they go full out on Halloween because everybody goes there to buy their costume. So, like, you buy bits and pieces and whatever. So, you go to Value Village. I remember one year, I must have been, I want to say, like, nine, and I was a mad scientist for Halloween. True story. I'll have I to dig it. up a picture. And my mom was so good at costumes. We got this white uh, lab coat and then ping pong balls. We like glued all over and drew like little um, eyeballs on them. And then got like a one of, you know, like the dollar store has like a packet of plastic bugs. So glued plastic bugs all over. I had a giant like plastic rat that we like sewed to my shoulder and then my mom, in her absolute grace and wisdom, because it is Halloween in Canada and it's fucking cold, she 
built this hat, basically, that was pink, sort of like chiffon-y material that she sewed and wrapped up and put it onto a hat so it looked like an exposed brain. Oh my god. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And That sounds so cool. So it's like, A, it looks really fucking cool. You're a mad scientist with an exposed brain. And B, you're warm as hell because it's an mm. actual hat and it's Halloween in Canada, so it might be snowing. And I just, like, that is Halloween next to buying an Ouija board from Zellers and then, like, doing it in the basement and, like, getting everybody traumatized. That, to me, is, like, the perfect <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> it's, that's so funny that you mentioned about, because you do have to factor in that you have to be warm because it's cold. So where I grew up in the D.C. area and it was cold, so you have to, fact, like, you have your costume, but you have to work in how to get a jacket or, like, yeah. thermals underneath it. So yeah. you have to take that into account. A lot of times you'd, like, buy, if you were buying a costume at least, you have to buy, like, a size too big so you can get your coat on underneath. But then complain because it's like, well, I want to be, like, a sexy cheerleader, but I got to wear my snowsuit on underneath this costume. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I love that. But it was always, I think more now, they make all, you get, like, the cheap Chinese, like, like not Chinese, but I guess they're made in China. They're made somewhere in a factory where they mass produce, like, you know, just the cheap costumes that you could buy. Where I love the um, like the generic names on those. Oh yeah, yeah. where yeah. it's like Wizard Boy, and it's like <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's clearly a Harry Potter costume or something. And do not stand close to an open flame because that thing no, will they're go definitely up. Whoosh, yeah, not flame retardant. I think they had to like legally start making them like where they're like you know you're not just going to immediately burst into flames yeah. like as a child if you go near a you know combust. yeah they, but i know back when i was younger too we made a lot of costumes that's like a big deal was to make them more so and that brings me to one of the things one of my costumes and i was desperately trying to find a picture right before we started and i'm gonna find it to post it on the socials but one year i decided and this is the most non- scary geekiest thing ever but I don't know why I insisted I wanted to go as an artist so I just wore this whole outfit where I made myself one of those um what are they called like I had a beret I had like this whole outfit with oh did you have like the little board where they yeah the little boards on. what are those What's things called? called the palette palette, palette yeah. and mm. a paintbrush oh to carry around <laughs> and that and I just walked because I was like I don't know but it was just and in that picture I have on white sweatpants and sweatshirt underneath the, the stuff because you know how you're trying again you're trying to make yourself as warm as possible so you have to like layer up what kind of age are we talking here oh i was like 10 okay. i mean and then nobody knew what i was because i mean what what kid goes as an artist for halloween like what a loser <laughs> <laughs> i think between that and wanting to be an m&m one year but that was oh, like oh yeah did that you was say an m&m M&M or, or an m&m M&M? The M&M. candy? Do you mean the candy a or the wrapper? M&M. I was a green one, to be exact. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, like, I think you can probably buy the generic costumes now, but, like, what, we, like, full-on made it with, like, felt. Felt was your best friend at Halloween. Oh, yeah. I remember yeah. one year I, um, it was a Value Village costume. We went, I was a cheerleader, like, the most unsexy-looking cheerleader. But I wanted to be a dead cheerleader because I thought that would be okay, way more you. cool. So I bought a bunch of fake blood, and you can get those, it's almost, I don't know what the material is, but you put it on your face and spread it out, and it looks like skin. It's disgusting. And I covered my face in that. Yeah, Yeah, just not nice. But that was like a homemade value village. Let's not do a cheerleader. Let's do 
a dead cheerleader. And it was How disgusting. <laughs> like 13. All right, that's cool, yeah. But I just, knowing you, you're so not a cheerleader. Like, you're just, like, the opposite <laughs> of, like, cheerleader. But then you say dead cheerleader, and, okay, that's definitely more you. But then I think, obviously, Hannah, you didn't do the trick-or-treating stuff, but I feel like you mm. make it up. You've been making it up in your later adult life. Well, just by being a goth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're an adult goth. But, so you're, um, like, Halloween you're every wrong. day. You're, you're not wrong, so that's the thing. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> So for this episode, we were talking about what we wanted to do for Spooky Month. And I think it was, like, this time last year, maybe, when we went camping. Maybe, like, late September. So the three of us went camping in Rye here in England. And it was, I don't know, it was dark out. We all sat out by our little homemade fire. And we told murder mystery stories. So each of us told a story. It was super creepy. I'm sure everybody who was also camping was equally terrified because I'm pretty sure, like, our voices carried through that whole campground. But I kind of wanted to do something similar where we gather around our virtual uh, fire outside. It's spooky month. And we're each going to tell a spooky murder mystery. Normally here at Murder Friends, we tend to have fairly light episodes, nothing too too grim. I'd like to think a little bit a little bit lighter, but this is a different episode. So if you're not interested in really creepy, fairly gruesome crimes, please go ahead and listen to one of our other episodes. This is just a special one-time thing. All of our episodes will not be this grim, I promise. I did some research on creepy stories. There's a couple that come to mind, but none of them were really fitting. And I found this one that I sort of did a little bit of a deep dive on. And I, yeah, you'll see why I chose it. So, to set the scene, imagine you're living at your family farm. This beautiful farm out in the in the woods. Your beloved maid quits because she keeps hearing strange noises in the house. That sucks, not the end of the world, but a bit creepy. Then you start finding newspapers in the house that no one in the family bought. They're actually from a city that's quite far away, which nobody's traveled to. The house keys keep going missing. You see fresh footprints in the snow coming from the dark forest towards your farm, leading to a broken door in the farm's machine room, but there are no tracks away from the house. Set the house on fire. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, just go. So this is the beginning of the infamous, and I'm so sorry to all two German listeners, Hinter... Uh, no, I'm going to post it. I can't say it. I'm so sorry. But it is the story of the murders that happened at this farmstead in 1922. So we got, we're going back in time to a spooky murder mystery out in Germany. So this is just a tiny, small farmstead about 70 kilometers north of Munich. It's one of the most gruesome and puzzling unsolved crimes in German history. And it gave me nightmares. So on the evening of March 31st, 1922, six inhabitants of the farm were killed with a mattock, which is like a pickaxe, basically. So the six victims were the parents, Andreas, 
and Seville, again, so sorry for the names, their widowed daughter, Victoria, who was in her 30s, and then Victoria's children, who were seven and two, and their new maid, Maria. So, like I mentioned, some weird stuff started to happen before the attack. So, finding newspapers, finding tracks to the house, but not out of the house. The original maid quit. There was creepy noises. In the night, the family heard footsteps in the attic, but the father found nobody when he was searching the building. So, overall, 100% nightmare fuel, creepy time. You do wonder, which I'm sure you'll get to, how do you kill six different people? It's noisy. Are they going to run? I mean, somebody's going to wake up and then run. I mean, it's just, it seems insane. It's so, and it's so creepy. Anyway, okay. So the father actually told several people about these um, observations, but he basically refused to accept help. The details went unreported to the police. He was basically like, I'm going to deal with it. It's not a big deal. No worries. The family also reported seeing a man with a mustache that's the only description we have. A man with a mustache standing at the forage, forest's edge and just staring at the house, basically, like, watching them. Oh, fuck me. Creepy, but also, I mean, it's a free country. I guess you can look wherever you want to look. So on the afternoon of the 31st, the new maid, Maria, arrived. So Maria's sister escorted her there and then left the farm shortly afterwards. The sister's likely the last person to see everyone alive. So she literally drops off her sister at her new job, and then that's it, basically. The police believe that in the evening, the sort of eldest daughter, Victoria, her seven-year-old daughter, and the parents were lured to the barn where they were murdered one at a time. But, I mean, we're, we're talking about the 1920s. Evidence collecting is not quite the same anymore. So really, in, in this stage of the crime, people don't know what happened. They believe that the perpetrator or perpetrators, they do not know how many people, they used the pickaxe belonging to the family farm and killed the family with their own weapon, basically. Then the perpetrators moved into the house where they killed the maid in her bed with the same weapon and then presumably killed the two-year-old real sorry while he slept in his crib. So the family was lured to the barn. The family was killed. The person went in the house, got the maid, and the remaining child. That's the basic premise, but even at this point, people don't know. So as you can imagine, with the farm sort of out in the boonies, it took four days for people to discover that the family had actually died. They even had a machinist come out to the farm to work like to repair one of the machines. And he basically went, worked, and then left. But he said he didn't well, he see... he didn't even know. No, he, he said he didn't see any of the family and he heard nothing but sounds of the farm animals and the dog inside the barn. So he sort of waited around for a bit, didn't see anybody, he thought, well, I'm just going to do what I need to do. Left five hours later when he finished. When he was in town, he talked about how it was super eerie and like the ghostly emptiness of the farm and how he didn't see anybody. And basically that afternoon, a party went back to the farm and was like, something's wrong. There's a lot of people at this farm and to not see anybody is not right. And so when they go back at this point, four days later, uh, the bodies were found. 
it seems like it's it's so methodical because they would have had to know how many people were there to be able to like lure them out and like know what you're dealing with. Because if you're, it's not like you have this an automatic weapon where you're like you could you can not to get too grim about it, but like you know that's a lot of people to try to contain. Yeah, absolutely. Does that make sense? And so it's like also, even so like, eerie. Yeah. Also, they like, lured them out as well, like to yeah. save. They were all in the same place to threaten them into staying at the same place. Yeah, where that mm. makes sense to like lure them out, look like one after the other somehow, or there I would have had to at least be like multiple people doing it. Yeah, it. I mean, the crime itself is is super duper creepy, and which is why I picked it. But also, what's so frustrating is that the investigation was not really handled properly. Obviously, it's 1922. There's lots of things that they just didn't have, or maybe hadn't even seen a crime like this before. But basically, the crime was investigated by the Munich police, and they originally were hampered by the number of people that interacted with the crime scene, that bodies were moved, that items were moved, even people cooked and ate in the farm's kitchen. Like, while they were there investigating, they're like, well, we're we're here, who needs lunch kind of thing. Like, they... Yeah. The day after the discovery of the bodies, the court physician performed the autopsies. It was established that the Maddock, or like, it's basically an ice pick, was most likely the murder weapon. The the weapon itself was not at the scene. Then it goes on, I mean, there's some pretty grim details. They're all pretty awful. I guess one of the things that makes this case um, a bit notorious is that the... (sighs) You can do it. I believe in you. All right, here we go. Why do I always pick the most gruesome things to talk about? I'm so sorry. Okay, so (laughs) the heads of the victims were removed and sent to Munich so they could be examined. Because the uh, trauma all happened to the heads, they thought, well, why don't we just take all the heads and we'll go look at them in our what? lab i'm I, that's yep. insane <laughs> i Who know just removes the head for evidence purposes and that's just bonkers yeah all of them too so they were kept in the justice building and were later lost possibly destroyed in the allied bombings of world war Two. Mm. a couple oh days God. later after like all this is happening so we're just we're still in april the victims were buried in a cemetery, obviously, sans heads. So, imagine being, like, the UPS guy, like, who has to pick them up and take them, and, like, you don't know, or, or like, you know. Yeah. Well, do you know when you go to the post office and that they ask you, like, what's inside? What's inside, yeah, it's for and insurance like, purposes. oh, it's just a book, or, oh, it's just a present for someone, and you'd be like, oh, just six human heads? Yeah, just, <gasps> just six heads. And but the like, fact that they're lost. These heads, yeah, who loses the, the heads? They definitely had a bad review, whoever, like, <laughs> transported them. Someone's getting fired, and we know it. <laughs> the police believe that the motive would be robbery, but a large amount of money was actually found inside the house. So somebody did this for a very specific reason. They realized that the perpetrator, or most likely perpetrators, because obviously so many people died, I think it would be difficult if it was just one person. But they believe that the perpetrators stayed at the farm for several days after the killings because someone fed the cows, had eaten an entire supply of bread from the kitchen, took meat from the pantry. It's also possible they were still there after the discovery of the bodies as neighbors reported smoke coming from the chimney after the fact. 
did they not just check the house to be sure when they, you know, found the bodies? I mean, well, we'll get to that. It's, it gets creepier. With no motive, the police questioned more than a 100 suspects before closing the case in the 50s unsolved. Because it's such a notorious case and it's so gruesome and creepy, there's still interest in it. But obviously at this point, pretty much anybody associated with the case is dead. There's there's yeah, no there's one no left one to talk to. So there, there's a couple inconsistencies that mess up the investigation. The original reporting believed that each family member went to the barn to the due to the restlessness sound of the animals. So it's almost like the animals were upset about something, and then one by one they would go out to check on the animals. But then they found out that not even screams from the barn could be heard in the house. So why did four family members go to the barn in the first place? They also, the exact sequence of events, they couldn't be clarified without a doubt. They don't know really who died in what order or, or anything like that. There was only five pictures taken from the crime scene. Two with the bodies in the barn. One of the maid in her bedroom. One of the small child's wrecked crib. And an outside view from the yard. No fingerprints were secured. The assumption has always been that the killer was already on the premise and inside the roof before the act. Inside the roof. No, no, no. Because there were reports that they could hear footsteps and stuff, they believe that the footsteps in the snow was them coming into the house, and then the footsteps in the attic was them kind of moving around. Some of the evidence for this theory includes that there were roof tiles that were shifted and there were, like, hollowed bits out in the hay. But then, apparently, and I don't know how uh, substantiated it is, there might have been um, some activities by the father and daughter up in the roof that might be unrelated to the crime. So, if that's the case, it makes sense why the father was like, oh, nobody's up there because I moved that stuff around or whatever. On the night of the crime, so three days before the, like three or four days before the bodies were discovered, this guy, Michael, actually passes the farm and he observed that the oven had been heated by somebody. That person approached him with a lantern and kind of like freaked him out. So Michael like ran off basically. Nobody knows who that person was. Was it the killer? Was some, was Michael like confused? We don't know, but there's definitely a case that the person who did the crime or persons were already in the house, and very likely they stayed in the house for a while afterwards, which is so fucking creepy. I just can't. Less than a year after the murders and the murder investigation, the farm was destroyed, like completely demolished, which actually revealed additional evidence, including that ice pick that was hidden in the attic. Since then, the site has no structure other than a memorial shrine. There's been no formal arrests or convictions or any sort of closure. And that is the creepy and unsolved murder that I can't pronounce. (laughs) I can't think of anything more terrifying than having someone in your loft. Yeah, that's one of the creepiest. Then waited and then killed you. Uh, yeah, it's just this, like how they, it was like, they had obviously scoped it out. They'd been there, you know, ahead of time. It was all very planned and it didn't seem like, did you say that they found money in the property? 
Yeah, so originally they thought it was a robbery, but then there was quite a lot of money that was not necessarily hidden that well in the farm, like in the home and stuff. So that, like, it's one thing, I guess, to kill somebody for money. People do that all the time. But to kill a whole family, including a very small child and a maid, like, what what benefit do you have of that? Like, why? Yeah, creepy. Like, what motive was that? Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like, well, unless they just wanted some food and drink and shelter. But, I mean, seems a bit extreme. (laughs) There was a couple suspects. I won't go into them because, as you can imagine, there were tons. They were basically grasping at straws. One of them that I thought was kind of creepy was, so there's the grown daughter who had the two children, Victoria. And her husband had reportedly been killed in the First World War. However, his body had never been recovered. So after the murders, people begin to speculate whether he actually did die or if he had sort of faked his death and then come back to the family. Because like I mentioned, there was some talk that the father, Joseph, and his daughter might have had the small child together, the two-year-old boy. So the idea that this potentially dead husband came back and like to seek revenge and killed the family and whatever, but there's like there's no evidence. Evidence It's basically them just like pulling at straws. That's wild. That's a good. That is a very creepy story. I want to say it's called the Hinterkaifeck murder, but we'll post details and stuff like on the blog and whatever, and you guys can check it out. But I generally thought, normally I don't like unsolved crimes because it drives me nuts, but there's something about, something about this one, the fact that they were in the house, like just spooky, spooky, creepy time. The one I picked for today is actually also technically unsolved. However, it's pretty likely they know the suspect. Actually, yeah, it's pretty spot on that they know the suspect um, who did it. But it's kind of along the same lines of, like, the... Uns- which I'm the same. I hate unsolved crimes because, like, I don't like to, like, listen to about them because then I'm like, oh, great. Well, I've just listened to this seven-part podcast and we have no conclusion. <laughs> All right, so I'm... And I'm not going to tell you guys what the... My murders are called. <laughs> well, what they're... Because they're, you, you've probably heard of it. I don't know if you know anything about them or have listened to anything on them. But it is, it's pretty well known. But I think I'm going to tell you the story and then I'll tell you what it sort of is, what it's called. Cool. So there's many reasons this frightens me. <laughs> and I will explain those sort of after, or you'll get the hint of it anyway. <laughs> On the 23rd of June, 1965, Houston police attended a house to do a welfare check. Marvin Martin had earlier placed a call to police to check up on his aunt and uncle, Fred and Edwina Rogers, as he had not been able to reach them for several days. Two police officers knocked on the door and eventually kicked it in as they could not gain a response. A walkthrough of the house eventually led them to the kitchen where one of the patrolmen um, was compelled to open the refrigerator after noticing food out on the counter. Inside, he saw what he believed were stacks of hog's meat until he opened the crisper only to find the heads of the two homes residents, Fred and Edwina. It was, of course... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It was, of course, not hog's meat and instead the limbs and torso of the residents. In their own fridge. In their own fridge, yes. So obviously that is incredibly horrifying, and it gets worse. 
I feel quite safe knowing that I've got quite a small fridge. Yeah, same. So I think if someone <laughs> came in and killed me and James, they would have fit in the fridge. No, no. <laughs> I know that's grim, I've, but I feel safe. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, silver lining and all that. A subsequent autopsy and investigation led them to believe the following occurred. And I've actually tried to, like, tame this down. Three days prior to the discovery of the bodies, Fred Rogers was attacked and killed by blows to the head with a claw hammer. His eyes had been gouged out. You said you were toning it down. (laughs) That is toned down? Oh my god. (laughs) Edwina Rogers had been beaten and shot execution style in the head. The bodies were then dismembered in the upstairs bathroom by someone with at least some knowledge of anatomy. Their organs had been found in a nearby sewer as they'd been flushed on the toilet. Again, this is toned down. The house had been thoroughly cleaned, and the only blood led to a bedroom where they discovered a bloody keyhole saw. The bedroom belonged to their son, Charles Rogers, and he was nowhere to be found. So, Rogers was described as reclusive and reportedly, and reportedly communicated with his parents by way of notes that he slipped under the door. Neighbors were even unaware that Rogers lived with his parents as he generally left the home before dawn and did not return until after dark. So at that point, I mean, he just disappeared. Like, he was nowhere to be found in the house, and actually to this day he was never found. He, decla- he was declared dead in 1975, or death, dead in absentia, or something that's like, I guess he'd been gone for long enough that... Is that when um, you're, you're pronounced dead in absence of a body? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Or like Lord Lucan. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But oh. that was, they did that because they wanted to... They needed to settle his estate. So so he remained the only suspect in the murders, but they're actually still considered unsolved. So let's talk about Charles. Charles Frederick Rogers was born in 1921 to Fred and Edwina. Roger attended, Rogers attended, atten, I can't speak, attended the University of Houston, where he earned a Bachelor of Science degree in nuclear physics. During World War II, he was a pilot in the United States Navy and also served in the Office of Naval Intelligence. After the war, he worked as a seismologist? Seismologist? Yes. Earthquakes? Yes, yes. I had to look that up because I couldn't... (laughs) But you are correct. I couldn't remember what that was. Um, For Shell Oil for nine years, he abruptly quit his job in 1957 without giving any explanation. And that sort of went... He went and he started staying with his parents. But he actually, um, he was actually, he's really smart. He's a very smart, intelligent guy. Um, he actually was really successful in her, his career. And then obviously he just quit and then was living with his parents. The police never really got anywhere with the investigation. But rec- in recent years, two forensic CPAs um, from Houston started to investigate the case. Because obviously it was officially never solved. Ma- mainly they're pretty sure it was him that did it. But he had obviously just fled, and they, they could never find him. So they really wanted to get to the bottom of what actually happened, or where, if they could track where Rogers went. So they began tracing the money and trying to piece together what happened. So they did, after some investigation, they realized that Charles' childhood was really grim with Fred and Anwina, they full of alcohol, emotional and physical abuse from his parents, which subsequently Charles was a loner, um, but he was, like I said before, extremely intelligent. They found out that Charles actually owned his parents' house and that his parents had been ripping him off by taking out loans against the house and then keeping the money for himself, themselves. So what the, the two CPAs did were they followed the money. They were able to like sort of start to track, forensically track the money, like where he, 
was able like where he went. Um, and during their investigation, they realized that Charles had escaped to Mexico and then to South America with the help of several friends. And they think that he had friends that helped him because people made a lot of money from him. Because what he did is he um, he knew where oil was and he could he had a lot of business con- connections. And then they believe that his friend did actually help them and then obviously never said anything. They also believe Rogers was eventually killed, though, later on in Honduras over a coal mining dispute. If he was alive today, he would be nearly 100. So, of course, he wouldn't be alive anyway, like, at this date. And so that is basically what we'll call the Icebox Murders. Oh, see, I've heard of that name, but I did not know any of that story. Mm. Yeah, I've heard the name, too, and I didn't really... And I think the reason it really freaks me out is because imagine this, like... Because I think when you start to read it, or start to read about it, you just think this weirdo, loner man living in his parents' house, and then he one day just, like, snaps and then kills his parents. But that is so... And, of course, I left some of the details about what actually he did to the bodies. But that is, like, he didn't just kill them. He, like, mutilated their bodies. He cut them up, flushed their organs down the toilet, chopped them up and put them in the freezer. Like, that is hatred, you know, full-on planned out yeah that would mean that there was some kind of motive yeah exactly like he obviously like, it wasn't just he went he snapped it was like something yeah he didn't just snap. Yeah. he's probably in there planning it and especially if it sounds like the parents were pretty toxic anyway and um maybe he just had had enough i've had enough now i'm gonna get out of here and i think that's why it freaks me out the most. because somebody because imagine somebody you live with doing that and then the thing i think part of it is is that he was never found so he managed to just escape, and it's like something out of a movie where, because they, you know, he just escaped to South America and then was, like, never seen again. Yeah, that's crazy. And especially the fact that he was really successful. It wasn't yeah. that he lived at home and, and never talked to anybody or never worked a day in his life or anything. Like, very successful, very intelligent and obviously very intelligent if he was able to escape and to not be found. Because I can't imagine how difficult that would be. Although I guess, I mean, in the in the 60s and 70s, it's a bit different. But even still. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it was probably easier to disappear back then. Obviously now it's really probably a lot harder. But yeah. it's still, it's just, I just found it really creepy. Just the, idea of, just the idea of him just being in that room and like slipping notes into the door. He didn't want to have anything to do with his parents anyway. And the fact that the neighbors didn't even know that he was living there. Yeah, Yeah, that's really bizarre. Can you imagine being those investigators, though? Like, that would traumatize you for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah. You just open it, open the door to the fridge, and you see the heads in the crisper. Oh, my God. No. (laughs) Well, at least they uh, knew where the heads were, unlike Alana's story. I know. At least the heads. So. They're sitting in a warehouse somewhere in Germany. (laughs) 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 FedEx. (laughs) Sorry, it's not funny. It's not funny. I did a story and then I changed it because it wasn't right. So, have you heard of the smiley face murders? I've heard of them. Oh yes, but not not in depth. Not in detail. Yeah, okay. So I'm gonna start off with a humble brag. So, um, as you both know, I recently graduated with a criminology degree, and for a social science degree, there was like a huge amount of statistics within it. And something that a couple of people in my module groups really struggled with, um, the understanding that just because two things are happening at the same time doesn't necessarily mean that they're connected or that they correlate in any way. So, for example, whilst like rainfall and windshield wiper 
use would correlate. Finding a dead body in a river and there being a smiley face graffiti on the wall might not necessarily be connected. But for Kevin Gannon and Anthony Duart, I'm sorry if I fucked that, um, who are retired and former NYPD detectives, and Lee Gilbertson, who is a criminal justice professor, there is a correlation between finding missing young white college-educated men in rivers and finding graffiti at the crime scene. Wow. What a, like, classic calling card. Yeah. Yes. So when I first heard the story, I was like, bullshit. But one of my late-night deep dives into the internet, Gannon, Duart and Gilbertson could have looked like quite a compelling theory, and it verges on being a conspiracy theory, which, as you know, I enjoy. So they believe since 2008, some 40 cases have been mislabeled as accidental or undetermined drownings, but they're actually murders. Um, So since then, their database of potential victims victims and suspicious drownings has risen to 355 as they've added in additional physical evidence. Um, The first thing they say is decomposition of these, these bodies. So they believed that some victims were missing for like a really long period of time, some of them up to 40 days, and yet when the bodies are found, the decomposition of them has only been like a few days, like three days or two and a half days. Ganon, who... I can't say the name Ganon without thinking of a video game boss in Legend of Zelda. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so Ganon... Are you saying hi- Ganon or Gammon? Like the hand? Ganon. Ganon, okay. Yeah. So Ganon highlights lividity patterns which is like how blood settles in a dead body, um, lack of bloating and the presence of insects, um, which are normally found on land, which would mm-hmm. indicate that these victims actually died on land, not in the water. The detectives, the other two detectives, Duarte and Gannon, they highlight that there's often presence of GHB drug, like the date rape drug, in their systems in 99.9% of the victims. Wow. Oh, yeah. Interestingly. GHB is not often included in post-mortem toxicology tests. Really? No. So it's often for the family of the victims for them to request that this test be undertaken or by, by the coroner or samples have been requested to be sent to this trio for them to test for their research. So the outcome of this is basically they believe that these men are abducted, murdered and then placed in the water. They want these deaths to be reclassified as homicides and then their second priority is that they want to show that there's a link between them, so between all these murders for them, and that link is that there's often one of 13 symbols, including a smiley face, graffitied near the crime scene. So there's actually other symbols as well? Yeah. There's obviously been like huge rebuttals to this. The FBI note that it had, quote, not developed any evidence to support links between these tragic deaths or any evidence substantiating the theory that these deaths are the work of serial killers. And the vast majority of these instances appear to be alcohol-related drowning. I mean, we live in, like, southeast England in Kent, and sadly we see it every now and then, especially in the winter, like young intoxicated men falling in a cold river and passing away. The World Health Organization state that men are statistically more likely to die or be hospitalised from drowning, and further that men are more likely to engage in risky behaviours, whether consuming alcohol or not. So, like, being, like, a dare of jumping in a river or, you know, having little regard for their safety. Well, on a lighter note, I mean, just go on youtube and you can see all the stupid videos of like men like yeah doing crazy stunts like yeah. jumping off a house into a whatever and like, yeah, yeah no you're right yeah 
Um, so there's actually been little physical evidence on the bodies that the cases are anything but accidental drownings. So there's no blunt force trauma, there's no strangulation, there's no signs of torture. Um, and further, that, that it's called homicidal drowning. So when you physically drown someone, like you want to kill them, it's very, very rare. So dumping a body in water doesn't wash away evidence, as is commonly believed. Dumping a body in cold water can actually preserve evidence, such as wound patterns, and it's pretty easy now to lift latent fingerprints from victim skins. Mm. Um, so I know we talked about it in Mindhunter, when we um, did our Mindhunter review, that we talked about um, Wayne Williams, who was convicted of the, or was believed to be responsible for the Atlanta child murders. So his conviction was ultimately secured by blood and fibre evidence obtained from bodies he jumped he dumped in a river. So that shows you, like, just because you're dumping a body in a river doesn't mean that all the evidence can be washed away and, you know, you won't get caught. It just, it's not true. It doesn't happen. The smiley face graffiti being present is also being questioned. There's numerous photos of the faces spray-painted that are available and they're all different in style and, like, size and the time frame's different as well. Some are painted like a really long time ago, some are painted after the murders. But if you think about it, like graffiti is pretty like omnipresent everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And what's a common thing that you would graffiti on a wall? Happy like face. Yeah, yeah, something face. easy. Or a dick. Yeah. Okay. Um so <laughs> or a dick. So, so, <laughs> or a massive penis. Yeah, just a giant pain. So the Centre for Homicide Research, you know, in their two thousand and ten research paper, that this cheery graffiti is a cynical slap at the police by the vandals. So it's like quite a common, a common thing to be. Yeah. yeah. So, what do you think? Are these young white college-educated men falling and drowning in rivers, or is there something more sinister? That's really tough because it does to have the G. All of them, a lot of them having the GHB in their system. That's like a big. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know that it can is also used as a recreational drug as well. Yeah, people take so, it. Yeah, people just take yeah. it. Yeah, and also, um, like, if say if you are in like a nightclub or something, and you're like gonna take a pill off someone. You don't know what's in it. Yeah. So, the GHB, so. a lot of times, is in liquid form, isn't it? So they'll put mm. it in... It's easy for somebody to put in a drink. Mm. I mean, I know that, like, near where we live, like you mentioned, you'll get, especially around Christmas time, I think, because people are out drinking more, yeah. and the water's really cold, and we've had some of the drownings, unfortunately, in similar circumstance. But I do think it's just... It's really... Okay, maybe the smiley faces are a stretch far too far. Like, maybe that's not... You know, like you said, um, two things can be happening, but they're not necessarily related. Mm. But it does sound, it just seems like a really high number of very similar deaths. Unless that is just a truly common thing, is it? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, a lot of their figures come from the US. And obviously the US is massive. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people. So, yeah. What think- kind of, like, confuses me is that if there's no physical trauma to the body... So they're not, if, if, say you had all these bodies washing up that look like they had been strangled. Okay, definitely something's going on there. But the fact that the body has, like, has nothing. Yeah. Nothing except drowning. Like, that seems hard to yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, some of them do have, or some of them did have, like, injury to them. But I'm sure that could be believed to be that, you know, say they hit their head and then yeah. stumbled into the river or, you know, it's not, it's a thing. So... I personally believe it's a bit of a conspiracy theory. I think it sounds like a good, you know, one of those good serial killer movies. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of like, I think it's really human to make sense of like a tragedy by believing that there is a 
conspiracy theory. Yeah, of like course. if you live with like if you live with uncertainty and like doubts, pretty hard to like process. It's always easier to hold on to something else, like it being a bigger. I think in grief uh, that maybe that there's a bigger picture, or there's a bigger you know f- that it's not the person, the victim's fault, you know, f- by being careless, or it's just not a horrible thing that happened. It's much easier, I think, to find blame in something else. Because mm. um, there's um, a criminologist, maybe. Scott Bond, and he kind of notes that we seek to control what we fear. And by believing in a conspiracy theory, it um, kind of like protects you from the world around you. It reduces everything to like us versus them. Um, it lets you like point a finger. It lets you blame someone. You blame something. And yeah. that's how people deal with tragedy. So I found that really interesting. I hope you did too. I got yeah, a lot of my information. From, good. Yeah, there's a really good article on um, Rolling Stone where a lot of my information came from about this. Um, and they actually link in quite a lot of the um, like research papers that have been done by like the Centre for Homicide Research, which I read on it. So it's, that's a really, really good article and we'll put links on, on the website. That's Absolutely. really neat. I think as well, if something starts to grow in terms of like a myth or a story or it gets publicity or you're hearing about like, ooh, there's these smiley faces, like I'm sure there's going to be people that will go out there and do them as like a copycat. They're not killing anybody or anything, but they're putting up these creepy smiley faces to be part of that sort of yeah, story. Definitely. Yeah, I definitely think you'll find that. Or it could just be as simple as what you said before. It's just something that when, you know, when you're like doodling on like a little sheet of paper, like you're on the phone, you're like waiting on hold and something, whatever. Hmm. It's just a common thing you you know what I mean I don't know it's just kind of one of those things like so who it could just be just trying too hard to connect these dots that aren't really you know there all right guys I guess that is kind of wraps it up for us do you know what listeners if you have a really good picture of a ridiculous costume you went as as a kid or you know what as an adult We'll have it. Why don't you send it away, email it to us, or send it to us on our social media. We'd love to see it, and then we'll post it. (laughs) We'll post it up there on our stories. I've got one other little favor to ask you, is that we are going to do a Q&A for our November YouTube video. So if you have any questions you'd like us to answer, please email them to us at murderfriendspod at gmail.com. Our Instagram is MurderFriendsPod, and our Twitter is MurderFriendsPD. You can reach us on any of those. If you have a specific question you want us to answer, it'd be great to email or anything you want to share. I'll also put this on our social media so if you, um, so everyone can see it as well when it gets a bit closer to time. And also, lastly, check out our YouTube channel. Um, it's called Murder Friends Podcast, and we are posting... Um, a YouTube video, a special video once a month. And you can also um, listen to our podcasts on there um, as well as every other platform. I think that's all for today. Bye. Bye.